Hello, CD listeners. We've come to the point in this album where those listening on cassette or records will have to stand up or sit down and turn over the record or tape. In fairness to those listeners, we'll now take a few seconds before we begin side two. Thank you. Here's side two. Welcome to the CDC Podcast. With me today, the two can her. PhD researcher with the University of Portsmouth who works with the Digital Romance Lab. Hello. Nels Anderson, designer for Clay Entertainment. Hello. Matthew Gallant, another designer for Lightbox Interactive. Hello. And Courtney Stanton, a developer with Summatomic Studios and founder of Women in Games in Boston. Hi. Well, you all went to GDC, you lucky, lucky dogs. I did. It was amazing. Sorry. Yeah, good. <laughs> I still haven't recovered from it completely. <laughs> Is it terrible that I measure my year in terms of GDCs? <laughs> I can understand how you do that because at least for me, like between me and my partner, I think we're breeding a super bug version of the standard GDC virus because we keep handing it back and forth to each other. <laughs> and so at this point, it's going to be like that month where I'm just incredibly busy and then incredibly sick. And so that is sort of a milestone in the year. The, uh, <laughs> well, the, the plus know? is by next year, you'll be immune. To this version. <laughs> well, yeah, but the rest of the people won't have the super version, so you'll be immune to all that's of them. That's true. Come give it to yeah. us. GDC, only the strong survive. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Comparison I've always heard is that GDC is like summer camp for game developers. Like, oh, it has that kind is. of vibe to it. It's sort of got a summer camp, but like summer camp and prom and it's <laughs> all the haircuts. Everything good. People tweeting beforehand about like what manicures they're getting and shaving the beard or not shaving the beard and all kinds of stylistic choices for their sartorial uh, stick they have. <laughs> but yeah, that was GDC. How often have you guys been there before? It was my first time. Quite an experience. But you guys have been there many, many years, I imagine. It was, it my, was my third. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was my third, too. It was my yeah. first year. Awesome. I found it overwhelming in many ways. Just yes. so many people and so little time between talks. And there was really like no dedicated break or anything. It was just, you know, talk after talk after talk. It was uh, for someone who's, you know, a little bit introverted. It, it was really overwhelming. Well, it was really overwhelming and I'm extremely extroverted. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, your whole brain just gets totally saturated too, right? It's like, you see a really interesting thing. Oh, I kind of want to consider that. Oh God, no, got to get to the next really interesting <laughs> yes, thing. Yes, exactly. There's no time for digestion and reflection. Either way, can I just say I enjoyed all your Twitter feeds for for an entire week. That's where, like, Twitter and then that's why I was so against my own health and sleep schedule dedicated to blogging as much as I did for the week because I knew that I was, like, basically placeholders for information that my brain wants to process (laughs) later. And otherwise I'll forget it because it's just you're constantly, like, the jug is full and just overflowing the whole time. Yep. It also seems that you went to a lot of half sessions to, like, cram as many of them in as possible. Yeah, basically what would happen is I would go into something, and I tend to vote with my feet, so if I wasn't really getting a lot out of it, there certainly was enough content elsewhere that I would just bail. Uh, and then meet up with other people because of Twitter. You would see, like, you know, you'd be reading of other talks while you're in your talk, and it's like, oh, well, it sounds like some cool stuff's going on, like three doors away. I'll just go check that out. So yeah, that's how exactly. I ended up bouncing around a lot. 
yeah, Twitter was such a good indicator of what you should be at. I mean, there were so many instances where I clearly just picked the wrong talk to go to and everybody <laughs> cool just seemed to be in the other talk. And I was like, oh. Yeah, because you can't coordinate. So I think I saw someone tweet something. Like, if you're not in Kent Hudson's talk right now, you just failed GDC. It's quite from GDC and I've already failed it. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you want, I can send you the video. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have a co-worker's. I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> I can see the videos. I'll catch up. <laughs> oh, that's right. You guys are designers. You have access to the entire vault. <sighs> well, I guess we should start with the talks. And probably the biggest one that at least some of you went to was Hawking's Dynamics. Hell yes. That was a, was a great way to kind of kick things off, at least right after uh, the Nintendo event, which was kind of disappointing. It was like yeah, that right... was the real keynote, I think. Uh, I like how you called it an event. And yeah, I'm <laughs> not sure what else to call it. I actually liked the Nintendo keynote. I'm like the only one. Yes. I, didn't even <laughs> I, I, also, I just did not go. Oh. Yeah, I skipped it. I slept. I, that was the first time I'd ever seen Clint talk and in public. And so I was not quite prepared, especially with, because that was what, like Thursday? Wait, I know it was... Oh, okay. Well, it was the first day of GDC. I went for the whole week. So we did the summits on Monday and Tuesday. So by Wednesday, I was completely at information capacity. And then Cliff gets up there and he's like, I'm going to go through like 175 slides the next 30 seconds and just boom, 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 boom. And so it was kind of hard to process, but I really liked it. Yeah, he talks I mean, so quickly. It's outrageous. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think his, his presentation style, though, is so good. No, mm. it's great. Like, yeah, I mean, it was just such a pleasure to listen yeah. to. Is very engaging and very clearly thoughtful, but not thoughtful in that way where it's like he's taking a lot of pauses to make you aware of how thoughtful you should be. But just instead, he's like, I'm thinking at an incredibly rapid pace. Keep up. <laughs> Fire hose of information, go. Yeah, it's awesome. And baby pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Always help. Have you been recapping those sessions at all in these podcasts? Or just kind of, are we going with the assumption that people know what Clint was talking about? Discuss the specifics. Go on. <laughs> Anything it is the place to discuss the talks themselves. Right. I just thought it was so well delivered and it was just a really good set of on-point observations about design. And essentially he was answering the question of you know, how do games mean? And the answer is by their dynamic. Then the point he was trying to drive home is that dynamics are not something to, they're, you know, they're so integral to designing a game they're not something to tack on i think he actually sort of said like oh they're not like a feature that is the core of how games mean he drew that parallel with with film i can't remember the name of that it's lev kuleshov right kuleshov? that was it yes kuleshov. Kule kuleshov effect that is the core of how films mean and this is sort of to do with it's an editing technique where well basically films mean via the juxtaposition of scenes yeah. and understanding that helps you to make movies which are meaningful and so it's so important for us to understand the fact that games mean by their dynamics so that we may also make games meaningful essentially yeah it was definitely a talk where in part because of the presentation style but just in part because of the argument he laid out and because he addressed very skillfully sort of what i would assume the listeners knee-jerk possible arguments against what he was saying in his talk it's, i think i'm at that point where i'm like i agree with you i just yes you're right it, it, takes, it takes a really smart person to take on brenda brathwaite and her whole mechanics is the message thing and articulate an alternate take on it that i actually agree with and so that's what i came away with that i was like wow all right i, I, I believe a different thing now <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
really How far away yeah. is it from mechanic is the meaning? Because it, it, it seems not, along the same lines. Yeah, it was essentially reinforcing it. The yeah. thing that he said, which was which was interesting, was that you know he brought up Brenda Brathwaite's train, which I don't know, should I explain that or should I ask people? Oh, understand? I mean, I haven't. Train. Let's always talk about train. Train. Yeah, I haven't played train myself. I don't know if you guys have. So. I don't. I think like five people have played. Train. Yeah, exactly. Not many people I, have played. It seen bring it to New train. York, Brenda. Bring it to New York. <laughs> bring it to the UK, Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but basically he said, he was making the point that mechanically Train and Tetris are essentially, they have the same objectives. And it's all about you're trying to maximize and maximize the way you're trying to fit things, etc. But because Train has this extra narrative layer to it, that forms an additional rule set in the player's minds. And so if we apply a similar rule set, if we apply a similar narrative to Tetris, if we say that Tetris is also about packing prisoners onto trains to be sent off to concentration camps, that means that players will, you start viewing Tetris through this different lens, and potentially it makes you play the game differently. I thought that was a really interesting way of presenting narrative, because I've got this tendency to be very systems orientated and to think in like procedures when I'm thinking of designing games, and I you know, admittedly, I think of narrative, and a lot of, I know a lot of people do, sort of think of narrative as just this skin which you apply on top of it, but I think, you know, he presented a really good argument that narrative essentially sort of forms additional rules in the player's mind, and I thought it was really cool. I love Clint. Yeah, he did a really good job. But that's where I, that's like I said, I feel like he's actually building off of Brenda's take on things and saying that, no, it's not just the mechanics, it's actually the dynamics, which is that sort of intersection between the player and the game's mechanics themselves. Yeah. yeah. I thought right, it was so just I, generally built really interestingly kind of on top of MDA, right? He really took MDA, yeah. those definitions as a starting point. And yeah. I just sort of focused on the D. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, Obviously. The, the, the way he broke it down that I, I personally thought was really interesting is that we all have this, I guess, kind of a loose idea of what it means when a game has, you know, a lot of authorial control versus one that doesn't, or games that give you a lot of freedom, and or games that can really feel the designer's heavy-handedness versus ones where you can't. And Clint really, I think, abstracted that or generalized that into games. How many, how much emphasis do they put on the dynamics versus the mechanics is really almost like a metric of how much control the player has, how much is the designer's hand present. Matthew, did uh, you want to define what MDA is for anybody listening who doesn't already? Uh, sure, could do that. Yeah, MDA was paper written by Robin Hoonick, Mark LeBlanc, Rob Zubek. It was basically a, a framework for game design, a framework, layers of game design meaning in a way. And it was, from a designer's perspective, you start with the mechanics. You start with the, uh, use a programmer analogy, like the compile time rule set, <laughs> the rules as they exist on paper. And then when you look at dynamics, you're looking at you know the runtime behavior of the system. You're looking at how those rules interact and behaviors you can't, don't necessarily expect can emerge from the mechanics when they're operating in tandem and in parallel and interacting with each other and whatnot. And then as Aesthetics is the emotional reaction from the player. How is the player feeling about this? And you know, what kind of aesthetic response are you getting? I think Hocking actually sort of redefined it as, uh, well, at least simplified it as rules, behaviors, and feelings, which is a nice sort of simplification, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking about that with some people at work, and Jamie Chang, the guy that founded Clay, he's like, why did they just call it RDF? And I was like, well, <laughs> fair enough, I guess. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little more straightforward. Yeah, like one of the interesting things that I thought fell out of Clint's talk, of course, it was awesome, 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 right? But I see kind of one of the big challenges is not a lot of, we're very much on the inside 
right? We're all really analytical game consumers or whatever. Yeah, and being we, we, in we, the we, industry has ruined us as game players. Exactly. Yeah, 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 basically. And I just <laughs> wonder, like, so. like, well, I, I wonder <laughs> from an audience perspective, aside from the people that are the most hardcore analytical folks about it, I wonder what the next step is in kind of bridging that gap of helping people read what the dynamical meaning of a game is. Because even something like Clint talking his talk uh, about Far Cry 2 and stuff, but I mentioned so many people look at that game and they don't see this thing about chaos and control and improvisation. They say, oh, I'm shooting dudes in Africa and those checkpoints respawn too fast. That's lame. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, I don't know how many people sort of look just beyond the surface stuff. Well, maybe it's kind of like a, maybe Clint is a fellow who designs almost for designers in a way. You know, like you have musicians who other musicians really like and they don't always have, you know, or, you know, writers that other writers really tend to like but don't necessarily yeah, yeah. get. It, it seems problematic, doesn't it, really? And can we draw parallels with other mediums in that respect? Yeah. Do you, sorry. Don't ask permission, just do. Well, because it sounds like you're talking about how to get the general video game player audience expectation to be a little more informed or educated. Exactly. And so that's, but part of well, that is that if you look at criticism and academics, I mean, film has had a lot more decades to educate the public about what to expect from film. Here's my take on it. When The the Matrix came out, everyone, oh, at least all the critics and the people who actually thought about film, all expounded its deep meaning and how it made people think differently and how it changes, and it isn't all that complicated. But general moviegoater Joe Schmo saw bullet time kung fu and robot squids, and he was satisfied. <laughs> right. So you are never going to hit the mainstream audience, but I think it's actually poignant that Far Cry 2 hit that sweet spot even among just critics or great players, the Idle Thumb guys being a great example of this, where they would just espouse the virtues of this of the game, Ben Abraham as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to mention Ben. Ben's getting Although, mentioned on every talk practically. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. Can you get a picture in the middle of Clint's talk? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. against Tom Bissell. <laughs> yes. Tom Street Fighter style. Awesome. It's one of those things where it definitely, I think that's hard to not engage and listen with someone when they're talking about someone you already know personally, because then it becomes like an implied mutual friend conversation that you're having somehow, instead of a presentation that's professional <laughs> and a large audience. I mean, <laughs> the flip side, I think, I think of what you're saying there, Nels, is that when designers play Five Right Tour, you know, where people who are deep in the industry play Far Cry 2, they kind of know, like, oh, I'm playing a Clint Hawking designed game. He has these certain design values and he has these theories on game design, and that kind of shows through in the games he makes. The vast majority of people have no idea who is making their games or, you know, what to expect or how to compare that against the spectrum of their other work. Itself a problem, and even if you're looking for it, I had, for like some of my favorite games, I on a whim, I decided to go find out who it was, and I had serious trouble oh, finding I'm out. I'm going to talk about video anything. game industry crediting because if so, I should just go hang myself now. No, no, no. That <laughs> was before I knew there was the crediting problem. I just simply couldn't yeah. find it. I couldn't find the names. Well, they used to put the designer's name right on the box, so. <laughs> Those were the days when it was easy to understand. <laughs> Sid Meier's Pirates, not yep. just Pirates. I don't think the box is big enough to fit all the Ubisoft names. Yeah. <laughs> they need a bigger box. Although at least with some of the games, they put the lead designer out front. Like mm-hmm. with Assassin's Creed, you knew it was Jade Raymond who was running things. Mm-hmm. But I think we're sort of veering dangerously yeah. into... Uh, well, I was going to say we're Not veering dangerously into questions, of, into questions of the intentional fallacy, etc. If it requires knowing that a game is designed by a certain designer who is into these themes, X and Y. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, that's, could, that seems problematic to me. 
I see more of it speeding up the process of being able to analyze it. If you have to, for every individual thing and you don't know it's the same guy who did it, you have to pull out all the same thinking by the third game or the third movie or the third book. You see it's the same author. You can say, okay, he did this before and, yep, he did it in this one and two. Mm-hmm. I just maybe I just have this maybe idealistic notion that maybe even without a deeper level of analysis, Joe Public should be able to perhaps get the at least some of the point of what they're looking at. And maybe the difference with movies is just that people, the general public, are used to making that tiny step of going, oh wait, when I see a movie, sometimes it's trying to tell me something, and people just don't do that with games. It's an education. Well, no, I throw that thing right out because even if you don't, it's not that young anymore. Uh, it has to do with education and being brought up with the thought process of that in America anyway for books you are told that from day one that books have meaning you just have to do it and then you spend 12 years learning the very basics of how to do that so even if, if you do read or you don't read at least you know you can pull it out of that medium the same with movies is very lightly addressed upon this way or that way you can figure out how to read it or how to even just baseline critique it. Games don't have that because we don't generally point to it. And even if we do point to it, we don't know how to talk about it. We don't really have a formal academic language, which is, again, which is why I said it's a younger medium, which means that it doesn't have as many decades of study behind it. It's not like when they were first cutting together tiny bits of footage in Russia because they couldn't get their hands on full reels of film and creating montage, that they're like, we're making montage. (laughs) That's stuff that was applied later by academics to be like, these are the things that people are doing. And the audience, film audience, developed that kind of literacy of understanding the vocabulary of film over, I guess, almost 100 years now and i'm sure if you showed someone in the 40s or the 30s or whatever a modern film they would extremely follow it yeah they would have all these yeah. jump cuts and it would have all these so, weird camera angles and it, i mean look at the whole well i, I mean this is exactly follow. what uh, clint oh. hawking was talking about right <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. she brought up the example of film well, and if yeah. you look at like the way ui has evolved i mean in first person shooters which is why you know as we were talking about in the pre-show deadly premonition gets a lot of flack because it's still got a, like, a health bar right. at the top of the screen which is just not that's useless information for us now game designs evolved past needing that amount of stuff available to the player on the hud all the time i disagree with that but for a slightly nuanced reason i won't get into right now i I totally think that gamer literacy should be taught in schools Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of the gdc micro around was about systems literacy and teaching that kind of thing to yeah, it's more that really games are just kind of one instantiation of a general broader thing of systems literacy, right? It's just a very good, clear, relatively encapsulated one rather than the complicated systems that inform global warming or something like wrapping your head around that. Or even right. just an electrical like, system. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like, how do your lights work? Well, there's this dam in Quebec really <laughs> far away, and then you push a button. And yeah, games are sort of a really encapsulated, tight, good way of, oh, here's how you can think about systems, and here's how a system can say stuff. So, yeah, what I really wonder is, obviously, this is partially just a time thing. I just wonder if there are ways to kind of short-circuit or push that people learn about games slash systems literacy sooner rather than we just wait, and in 50 years, it'll be better. Yeah. And I don't know what that looks like. Let's <laughs> <laughs> right now, go! Yeah, <laughs> that'll be what GDC 12 does. We just all get together and fix that. <laughs> I wonder if this is a good time to segue into Brian Moriarty's talk, then. Oh. Uh... <laughs> Let's eat unison, shall we? <laughs> I really liked this talk when I first heard it. I mean, it was... 
depressing. Oh shoot, I've already swore. <laughs> uh, it was really depressing. But then, yeah, I found a lot. Gosh, everyone in game academics was kind of disagreeing with it. Just I couldn't believe like how much flack that got tacked. Uh, well, one of the big uh, flack things I found was this guy going step by step, and he didn't put out like the theoretical disagreements. He he pulled out all the factual problems yes. with what he said. Apparently, it's so factually riddled with holes, it doesn't even, it can't stand on itself. When you have the Smithsonian having exhibits with video games as art happening right now, it's very hard for me to sit patiently through someone trying to argue why video games shouldn't be art when multiple curators I know who handle modern art are like, yeah, we already solved this. We've already agreed right. that they're art. Well, he seemed to be coming, I really got the impression from his talk, it wasn't just video games he was trying to disagree with or cast aside. It was really almost a hundred years of art. Kind of, in general. Yeah, postmodernism. He got a, an intellectual fad of relativity. I he, think he was he just kind of waving away postmodernism that way. He admitted he was coming from a romantics perspective, which yeah. is almost 300 years out of date. Right. Yeah. yeah. Also, though, I'm earlier on that same schedule is a talk called Go, Poker, and the Sublime. And then he gets up yes. there and talks about how video games and games just can't be sublime. And Frank Lance just schooled that for an hour. Where were you? <laughs> Actually, let's talk Frank Lance, because I spent a year disproving Brian Moriarty, and then he gets a standing ovation, and I got scorn on Twitter. So I have my issues with that already. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just, the standing uh, ovation was weird. That was Did that happen? Wow. That ha no, it happened, and the whole time I was like, is this happening? And the people, I was sitting there, we all took to each other, and the people are standing and clapping for that? Oh. And so I guess they were standing and clapping because they were in the same room as Brian Moriarty, and he did a talk for the first time in five years and, and he got were, and he just trolled the entire room and they were really happy about it I don't, so yeah. it was a he was, weird he, thing he was a hell of a speaker if nothing yeah. else yeah oh no it was a very very theatrically delivered wrong Fuck. idea yeah because <laughs> I have a feeling it had to be the delivery because once just the text not the audio just the text hit the internet it was instantly disparaged so without yeah. the presentation and that theatricality right, it yeah. falls apart and I mean I I'll admit I didn't turn up, so I didn't actually go to the session, but I yeah, certainly I read I read the text of it being posted to GameSet Watch afterwards. And my favourite comment on that was by Sarah Brin. I think she's Dinosaur Party on Twitter. Who is, she's actually an art historian. Yes, um, I saw that and loved it. Yeah, that. and she she posted the best debunking of his talk that I saw, basically saying, look, in the art world, yeah, we've accepted that games are art. Stop having this conversation. Yeah, and, the um, comments on that Game Set Watch thread were, were phenomenal. That's yeah. actually where the, I got the factual response was. Yeah, mm. and it's funny because his delivery was diametrically opposed to Clint Hawking's delivery. It was very ponderous, very weighted, a lot of theatrical pauses, very sort of measured use of the script. He was sort of looking at notes on, so you're discarding pages in a very staged way that I appreciated just because there's a lot of people who don't know how to speak in public who speak in public anyway. I got, he did a good job of trying to set this mood, and so when you're in that framework, I could see how people would be, well, it's charming that he's still clinging to these ideas that have been cast aside by all of modern society. <laughs>
for hundreds of years now. That's eccentric. And in a way, it's still maybe it does have something relevant to offer. And, you know, like I could see how he kind of gets you in this space because he's very charismatic and he did a very good job speaking publicly and did a good job being engaging. And so everyone stood and clapped at the end because they I think they liked him and wanted him to like that <laughs> in some weird way. Because this, this very wise, very kindly, Santa-eyed man. <laughs> you go, Brian Moriarty. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job. I, was like, I, mean, I know he teaches at WPI, and I bet his class is extremely well attended because I would get up at 8 in the morning to hear him talk <laughs> on the regular. He says things in an interesting way. You can't undersell that, especially at something like GDC. And that was one of the takeaways I got from my first year was don't even look at the session title. Just look at who's speaking because if they're good, it'll be good. And if they're bad, they will handle a topic you like badly. And you know. <laughs> Is there any possibility that Brian Moriarty was being ironic or... <laughs> Parodying the, the idea, Phoenix, yeah, like, or is that ship sailed? I think he meant it. Mm-hmm. I would think if he didn't mean it, the long. time to be like, "Psych has passed." Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I'm sorry. The peanut gallery in my apartment is telling me that they spoke to Brian afterwards, and he meant it. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I didn't go to the talk. I mean, there's probably two things that I pull out of general people's responses to Brian's thing, is that, one, to be fair, e- even if we say games in general as a construct c- can be art, still most of them are not, right? Yeah. I'd really have a hard time back in the play that... Dude, no one's going to argue that Cuba Gooding Jr. movies are art either. You know? But it's the 99 See? and 1% rule. 90% of everything is crap, 9% of everything is okay, 1% of everything is great. Yeah. yeah. I was going to draw exception to that, but I mean, we can't do that without getting into a what is art kind of debate. That's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of the second thing I pull out of is that it's like I'm very much fatigued by the what is art conversation yeah. because it, it's so <laughs> bloody subjective. Even if even if the lords of art appeared from some tower with a shining scepter and said, bam, we decree that games cannot nor will ever be art, I don't think that would really change anything. Like, it wouldn't change what I do. I'd say, okay, well, I guess they're not art, but they're still really interesting. The reaction to this talk really convinced me that no one gives a crap about the art games art talk. Like, that conversation is dead. It's buried. It's... Uh, yeah. No one cares about that anymore. I think the danger, though, of having that conversation when a particularly annoying instance of that conversation comes up in the public eye. I think the danger is that it kind of makes everybody, not everybody, it makes a lot of people roll their eyes and go, oh, why are we having these conversations? Let's just get on with making games or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's dangerous in itself because there is a lot of value to talking about this kind of stuff, just not that particular conversation itself. We should sort of move past that and move on to more yeah there are let's talk about the next level like you know what is the next intelligent thing we can then talk about building on that other people at gdc were doing that clint hawking was doing yeah. that and that, yeah. that's kind of a more as you said it's a more interesting direction for at the very least for game developers to be going in if you start with the foundation that i'm going to express myself in a medium you know in this medium in an artistic way then you can build more interesting questions on top of that totally yeah well and i Excellent. think oh go ahead no 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 finish Oh, I was going to say, I think it keeps coming up because I think there's still some terror in the hearts of some people in the industry that we're going to end up in sort of a cultural ghetto the way that comic books have gotten sort of sidelined. And, you know, depending, you know, some people do care about that stuff. Like some people would like to see their work in a museum someday. I mean, to bring up Train again, I mean, that gets shown 
in museums, as it should. But it's the kind of thing of, so when do we get access to arts funding? When do we start being able to have endowments? Last and, year. Yeah, and so that's the thing, but you have to keep pushing for it. No, it happened last year. I know. You have to keep pushing for things like that. I don't think that's the kind of thing where the mainstream doesn't think super highly generally of the video game industry compared to other art industries is going to just spontaneously one day be like, oh, we respect you now. Here's your place. If I could quote Jack Nicholson from The Departed, no one gives anything to you. You got to take it. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's where I think this keeps coming up because people are still trying to find ways to like push and take it and find that. And I think it keeps getting reduced back down to, well, are they even art or not in the first place? And then mm. you end up having yeah. stuff like that. Do you think the solution then, though, is not to, I mean, I don't know if we convince people that video games are art by, you know, having these very well-reasoned arguments and bringing up hundred years of Oh, I think it definitely goes hand-in-hand hand with having actually good games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think the good games alone are going to do it, or at least do it fast enough for some people. Plus, you also got to, as I said in my original post on this, you have to have this debate, especially with the influential people who declare they aren't, not for their sake, but for anyone who might be listening's sake. Mm-hmm. Because once you get an idea embedded in someone's mind, it is very, very hard to get it out. Comics are now clawing centimeter by centimeter out of that cultural ghetto that they put themselves in back in the 50s. And it seems to me that if they hadn't, it would be like in other countries where, yes, they are already understood and declared as art. And in this one, they're just clawing their way out. And video games don't want to have to claw out. They don't want to have to climb out of the ditch. Right. Yeah, I guess comics totally did that to themselves, right? It's yeah. not like there were awesome comics in the 50s and then people just saw this tiny subset of crappy superhero stuff and they assumed that's what everything was. It's like most of everything Actually, was no, kind of crappy. Awesome comics no, no, in the f- no, yeah, yeah, there but, were. No, 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 no yeah. there, there were. No, but what like did it ratio... was the government regulation and yeah. people only focused on like the bad and the harmful at the government. There was no internet for people to argue otherwise, and one professor was talking out of his ass, convinced Congress they were harmful, and without using the words, that they weren't art, and it put them in the cultural ghetto. And the thing is that then you you have the business model retool so that no one will pay for anything but the superhero comics, and and it's still the lifeblood, that's why it's taking them so long and so that's where it's i would you know would like to see like the video game industry still have indies who can pay their rent being indie developers and small studios and enough market diversity to allow for like healthy competition and new ideas and if we keep streamlining down to targeting bioware's target market of the straight male gamer that they're apparently neglecting <laughs> today so much to reference my favorite thing on the internet right now it's, it's hard out there so, for a straight male gamer it is so, <laughs> well, let's just call you fan. Let's do I don't feel oppressed. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like the fact that David Gator was able to write that response as under his corporate account. And, and get a lot and, of support. And ton of support and didn't get yeah. fired for it. That's seriously that day I was like, I need to go give Bioware some money. Like I went and bought one of their games because that is genuinely my idea. I was like, I want them to see a sales uptick today. Like that was phenomenal. Yeah. And that's you, the kind of thing that I think that we need to keep alive and healthy because otherwise – We've seen that other path. I think that's, again, like that sort of recent history, and I'm a big comic fan. I've never made a comic in my life, but I'm a very big consumer fan of a lot of different types of comic books and graphic novels. And so that's fresh enough in my mind as something I like a lot that it is kind of scary to see. Every once in a while you see discussions come up and stuff where it's like, oh, God, please let's not. Please no. Like I would really like to not have that ever happen. Yeah, totally. 
think we should probably move on to the next one. Yeah. Miss Swery. Uh-oh. Well, they too wanted to talk about the Cat Hudson talk, and it sort of went with the Clint Hawking one. Excellent. Trifecta. Yeah, that and C.S. Walsh as well. But I guess you, I don't know if you guys already covered that in the previous. Not really, because... Which ones were uh, those? Ken, uh, was player-driven stories was Kent Hudson. Oh right. And Warches was the identity bubble. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. I missed. Yeah. And like the three of them are working on some unannounced LucasArts project together, yeah. which um, they were all really good, really on-point design talks, and sort of that mm, makes yeah. me really excited. Yeah. <laughs> if I had known ahead of time that they were all being think tanky for LucasArts on the same project before I went to GDC, I would have made sure to hit all three of those, but. Mm. As it was, yeah. I just got. I'm trying to think if I have a lot to say about Ken Hudson's talk. It was, it was very much. It seemed very much targeted towards AAA developers who don't know better than to throw all their money at working towards the highest visual fidelity they can, etc. But yeah, I mean, it was, again, really, really good set of observations about things that we should be paying attention to. I think he's noted why Passage worked so well. And yeah, did anyone else attend that talk? I saw a video. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I'm trying to remember any other details that came out of it. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't realize we were going to be discussing that, so I didn't read any notes from it. He talked a bit about how all different elements can interact to create a singular vision, or all the elements should be focused so that they help the overall vision of what the game is supposed to do rather than just the individual, that it's the graphics or it's the gameplay, that it isn't just the highest realism fidelity. If something needs to be abstracted, you have to use abstract graphics. If you have to focus things, you use planar Sure, visuals. Yeah. You have to focus ev- almost every element mm. towards the vision rather than the tech. Right. And yeah, sorry, that just slightly jogged my memory there. Yeah, so he put a lot of focus on player agency as obviously like a player agency hand in hand with dynamic. That is what games are all about, basically. And I think he broke down player agency into feeling, I'm trying to remember his definition. Yeah, no, I don't remember it at all. <laughs> yeah, no, so again, player agency. I think, you know, maybe that actually ties well into. Randy Smith's talk on yeah yeah uh, leaving this, for the player. This one I couldn't find. So Matthew Nels, someone please explain. I missed it, but I, I really like Nels's reaction there. <laughs> <laughs> it was on the first day, second day. It was part of yeah. The, it was the during the summit. Yeah. Yeah, it was part of the Independent Games Summit. Randy very much. Uh, speaks in tones that I like to hear. But his stuff, it was all about the design for player expression and really leaving enough, he, he used this great phrase that, yeah, like, you know, you have to leave enough room for the players to be able to do what they want to do. And I think it's a very interesting design ethos that is increasingly scarce. I haven't played Homefront, but I've read definitely some people's reactions to it, and it's very clear you spend most of that game following NPCs, doing what they tell you to do, going through these very tight, scripted, confined areas, it almost comes down to people that create these experiences have such a concrete idea of how they want every single thing to happen that you're sort of shackled into doing exactly what they want you to do. And I find that that's probably the least interesting thing you can do with an interactive system, right? (laughs) It's not interactive. Exactly, yeah. It is in in these these tiny micro-burst kind of ways, but there are five dudes you got to shoot. How are you going to shoot them? Well, (laughs) I mean... 
Yeah, there, totally. there's some there's a little bit of interestingness there, maybe. But when all that is counterpointed against everything else in the game, you have to do exactly this at exactly this time. You can't do this until you're alive. That's so horrible. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Things like that obviously decrease your feeling of autonomy over the experience. And so there is no no sense of agency. And yeah, no, I really did like Randy's talk in general. I think yeah, one of the things I seem to remember I took exception with, though, was that he kind of suggested he, he was talking about score and he was talking about how score leads you to play a game in a certain way even when and he used the example of scrabble and scrabble should be a very open-ended experience but because Scrabble is a game in which you're obviously sort of competing on score, that lends itself to having to play it in a very particular kind of way. And he showed the the world leaderboards for you know, the, the top Scrabble players, and they all ended up playing the same word, right? And I can't remember yeah. what word it was. And so, you know, and again, it almost becomes a little bit deterministic in a way when because you've added score, so you're trying to optimize. And yeah, you know, I do agree with that. I think, but I think the solution that he offered, or one potential solution, was instead of score, displaying statistics. And in an open world kind of game, or no, not in an open world game, but in a game where there is more freedom of expression and displaying statistics from the level. So, you know, number of number of things done and number of whatever and score just becoming one of those things. But I think that also seems funneling to me. Because you'd of, still be limited by what limited you measure by, versus what yeah. you don't. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no good answer to that kind of thing, really. I Measure think, everything. <laughs> I, I think the ultimate in player expression comes in multiplayer when you're playing co-located with other people, because then you can you can do as many silly things as you like, and you can be as expressive as you like, and the feedback comes from just being able to laugh about this stuff with your friends, I guess. He showed the example of one of his friends playing Fallout 3, and after he'd finished the main story, his friend decided that his character had gone mad or whatever and went around the town collecting teddy bears and uh, rounding up teddy bears and putting them all sort of in one place and <laughs> he and randy smith was trying to figure out what a game could do in order to in order to reward a player i guess for you know in order to recognize that a player had done that there, maybe there is no i don't necessarily think there is a good answer for that i mean that kind of stuff i mean i do that kind of stuff when i'm playing with other people and not so much when i'm playing things by myself just sort of anecdotally yeah. Is yeah, this, I mean, that's, was, that's, that, was that where he... Oh, go ahead, Alice. Well, I was going to say, that's definitely kind of an interesting way to solve the responsiveness problem, right? Like, obviously, it doesn't work for everything, but you can force that complexity just onto other people in a Minecraft-esque way, right? Where it's not like the game needs to respond to the fact that you built, like, this crazy, insane thing. You just need other people to be like, whoa, that crazy, insane thing. I yeah. wonder if putting in the tutorial explaining what the screenshot capture button is would facilitate that. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so you can show off more. And Is that, that I don't have to search through ten minutes of options to figure out what it was. I'm now it's now far enough past GDC, but is that the talk where he was showing slides of screenshots of Thief and different Yeah, yes, yeah yes, and where awesome. players would go in and create these scenes for yeah. no one? Of, yeah. you, you know, everybody's passed out, but then going and collecting all the wine bottles in the game and putting them in the room to imply that somehow the guards were all drunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Like, why would you do that? But then, you know, ways that the game could interact with that that I thought was really interesting and that stuck with me enough mm. that I managed to forget which talk that came in <laughs> yeah. about, you know, ways that the game can sort of split, feel like the game sees you and sees what you're doing and appreciates what you're doing. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. And I don't, yeah, I don't know if maybe having things that are a little bit less grounded in reality kind of helps with that. Because, like, when you have a really, really real representation of something, you kind of expect it to respond in all the ways that a real world actually does, right? But then, mm. of course, that's an impossibly a new world problem, so that doesn't yeah. work. But having a more constrained thing with more 
more very, very simple bits that are just sort of richly interconnected, like the weird Martian pseudo-farming but not game they're working on. I wonder if that's interesting just because since you don't have any of the expectations of, oh, this is a place with people and booze and stuff, why don't the people interact with the booze? Like, if it's completely alien, ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha, kind of those responses are, are just... You don't notice where the responses are absent. You just kind of notice where they're present. I don't know mm. if that's... Like, yeah, and again, this goes back to fidelity. And this, yeah, this is the point that Kent Hudson made, is that increasing fidelity decreases feelings of agents because they, you start expecting things to behave as they would do in the real world, and they, they don't. You need mediation in games. Isn't that thief example kind of the opposite of that, though? Because that scene of having these passed out guards and having the wine bottles, we only have a context for that because we it's their people and their wine bottles. Those are things we interact with in the real world. We know what effect wine has on people. If you had alien farmers and you had put some object next to them, you wouldn't have any context for them because, you know, who knows what makes Martian farmers drunk or... Yeah, so then you have to explain the whole system from, basically from, like, first principles, right? From the ground up. And that becomes... As opposed yes. to assuming player knowledge. Yeah. Right? That's the challenge of fantasy and sci-fi and in every medium, so... Yeah. I mean, I that's... Actually, like, go ahead. I mean, that's what I've always liked about any game that's set very, very closely to the real world in modern times or whatever. The, the example that just kind of jumped to mind was uh, Earthbound, right? And in Earthbound, you have these really thin characters, which are your parents... And your your dad is the one who, when you kill monsters, deposits money in the ATM. And you have to phone him, yeah. phone him, and get him to deposit that money. And, and your uh, mom everyone, always tells you to go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> and and every once in a while, your character will get this status called homesickness, and you can yeah. only resolve that by phoning home to your mom, and she cures it for you. That worked really well, in my opinion, because people have parents, and they can just kind of substitute that in really, really easily. There's no representation gap there. It doesn't matter that these characters are really thin. They're stand-ins for people we already know. Right. Yeah. This, I think, would be a beautiful segue into the sweary talk, if you're okay with that, <laughs> just because he talked so much about this. Yeah. But if we have other stuff that you want to say. Go, go, go. Okay, so... Oh my god, the sweary talk. Uh, (laughs) It was like meeting Elvis and James Brown and (laughs) Prince and Bruce Willis all at once. It was the coolest. Didn't he make eye contact at one point? He did! And it really rattled me. He also coughed on stage, which was... It was like we kept looking around and being like, I can smell the coffee. It's right there. He's real. Like, he, he was, like, waiting for the thing to start. He, they were playing the little intro video to Deadly Premonition. Swery is the game designer of Deadly Premonition, which is a budget Xbox 360 title for anybody who doesn't know that. And he was whistling along with the theme song that was playing on the video, and then I was whistling along, and so it was like we had a moment. It was great. Um, so my imaginary best friend friend Swery did a talk about how they, the game design of Deadly Premonition and some of it, I am not super, super familiar with the sort of philosophies that motivate a lot of JRPGs, Japanese role-playing games so I'm given to understand some of this stuff is pretty East-West American design concepts versus Japanese design concepts
characters and how they approach video game characters. Some of it, I, which I do know, for example, the iconic poses and behaviors that are very easy for fans to emulate. That's a thing that JRPGs are huge on, and that's something oh. that we don't really do in American games. Like, you, they seem to try to not make main characters super goofy or... It was amazing how every design principle he brought up was like, how can we make the game memorable? How can we make yeah. people remember this? It was weird that that was really the value that he emphasized. <laughs> and that's where we're talking about how, you know, you have these very thin characters, but they're representations of things that you understand in your real life. Mm. They, the, the whole game is just full of that, of, of right down to, which is my favorite slide of all time at GDC, was the picture of the little pudgy blonde boy smoking in front of the game, <laughs> because they talk about how, which is, when I say picture, I mean illustration picture, it wasn't like a photo of a kid smoking, but they were talking about how they, there's a lot of dumb rules in that game, you have to sleep, and you have to eat, and you can drink coffee, and that'll wake you up, and then in order to pass time, which is an important thing to do in that game, so you can time events properly, you smoke. And when you smoke, you enter one of multiple surreal dream worlds and just hang out while the clock wine and they put all those things in the game and shaving is important and you have to change your clothes <laughs> if you don't which is really awesome because it carries through into cutscenes so you will have like flies swarming around you while people are telling you these really horrible things and there's just flies everywhere <laughs> which it's so weird because I'm like well that breaks the tension of the scene but then at the same time it would break a different kind of tension if the character costume didn't carry over into the cutscene from a yeah. player expectation way so I'm like, eh, go with it. What I love uh, about that is that while most other designers are asking, oh, how can I make the player's feelings map onto the character's feeling? How can I make the player relate to the character? He's almost doing it the other way around. He's making yeah. the, the characters relate to you. Or like the players. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so he said that the reason that they have all that in there is not just to be weird. It's because you do those things in your real life. And mm -hmm. so then when you stop playing the game, but then go do that thing again, you will think of the game. And, mm. <laughs> and because they have some kind, they reference data, but didn't provide a citation in the classic giving a presentation kind of way, that they had some data that a lot of players, when they show smoking in a video game, will want to smoke and will then smoke. And the main character of Deadly Premonition, Francis York Morgan, who I will call York because that's what everybody calls him, uh, <laughs> has this very, play the game and I'll be funnier, I promise. So, <laughs> he's got this very specific animation that cues every time you smoke a cigarette. Like, he opens his lighter a certain way, he then sparks the actual Zippo, and then he does this really, really large gesture, which I'm not, you can't see, but I am pantomiming all of this right now. <laughs> and then he does this almost embrace uh, to bring his arms around to protect the flame and the, the cigarette tip, and then he whips the lighter closed again with momentum like closes the lid on it and it takes this really long drag and it's a rather at the amount of time it just need to describe it is only a little longer than the amount of time it takes for it to play in the game and this happens every time you smoke and you smoke in that game a lot because you have to time events a lot and it does like it is very memorable like it's like remembering an idiosyncrasy of a friend it's not like remembering that time you had a controller in your hand and it does create this really odd sense that you're 
dealing with an, a real, not person person, but there's got to be some word between avatar and actual, like, sentient being. Like, it's a video game singularity. I don't know. But... <laughs> because, because Francis York Morgan and many of the other characters are quirky. Yeah. And just strange and just, they're easy to remember as a result. You don't remember them. You can slot them into the, I think that was actually one of his slides. Oh, we take this archetype. Oh, it's the chief of police in this village. And then just start throwing on quirks. Yeah. Right. And have almost the thing where he showed like an, also a network of tiny personality details that they worked out for these characters before, before writing the game or before, before developing the plot. Yeah. And that's why I think a lot of the plot actually feels the plot of the game is to get to know these people because mm. that's pretty much all you have to do. I mean, there's the actual story. And if the takeaway from this, if you're like the one person I can convince to try Deadly Premonition, <laughs> let me suggest highly to you that basically from the get go, ignore every Everybody telling you to go actually investigate the crimes and just go meet everybody in town and do all their random missions and side quests and stuff. One, because it'll give you a couple of items that make the game a lot more fun to play, like an infinity wrench, which is just I, really I fun. I infinity wrench. Between that and the radio. Without the infinity wrench and the radio, I think I would hate this game. Like I would just, I would, <laughs> you would have to deal with the parts that aren't very good for so so long. It, it, it's interesting hearing him say too that that combat was not intended for the game. You originally it was shocker, just... right? <laughs> <laughs> you originally just ran away from all the monsters and adding yeah. combat was to, oh to meet a publisher demands or so it would sell yep. in the west and they would sell yeah, the west that guns. explains a few things i have to say explains, having just started yeah. playing it myself oh, and else uh, <laughs> you'll like this it was originally set in canada what awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely one of those things where it is a combination of extremely specific character details and then really rough flat character stereotypes and I, it's very modern in or contemporary in, in theme with what we were discussing it is a video game that was made with the assumption you have already played a lot of these types of video games mm. that you are and, or that you've consumed these kinds of media that you've watched Twin Peaks or at least know what Twin Peaks is that you've mm. seen a detective story before that you understand that there's these kinds of characters that usually appear but then they just take all of them and make them really weird in a way that <laughs> I found to be a really good hook like I know a lot of people sort of look at it and on the surface and my first impression was an unofficial Twin Peaks video game because right. of the pine trees because they even have a log lady yeah. <laughs> they, have, they have a woman who's just well the the original trailer for it the, the Rainy Woods trailer which was game it was before it became Deadly Premonition was even more Twin Peaks-ish they even had the original Red Room it wasn't two children it was two uh, little people right, I, right. Uh, I'm not sure I know the politically correct term there that's, I <laughs> so, believe that's the correct term okay uh, few. <laughs> and yeah exactly it's, you know, right out of Twin Peaks yeah so it's close-ish but obviously like as he just Matthew just said like it could have been a lot closer and as you play it, I feel like it's a completely I don't even think it's inspired by I think it's just a game that was made in a world where Twin Peaks exists <laughs> and mm. so has certain Lynchian elements the way that pretty much anything weird these days has like a few hallmarks of one of the <laughs> either there's going to be some Cronenberg level body horror or there's going to be some David Lynch <laughs> weird backward talking so you know there's going to be something kind of odd it's going to be kind of odd in a way that reminds us of previous odd media it's definitely one of those games that the creation process behind it seemed incredibly motivated in making the characters real and there was almost no discussion of the plot there was really no yeah why do we want to make this game and it seemed because he wanted to bring francis york morgan alive somebody asked one of the really good questions that was asked in all of gdc was asking sweary what he would have done if he'd had money was there anything they had to cut out of scope and his answer was he would have had francis york morgan ride a bicycle <laughs> 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 
Yeah, so like, awesome. and I just to me it was such a refreshing motivation. Usually people are like, oh, I had this really idea and I wanted to say something and I wanted to like, explore. And it, it, this is not a game that's really interested in systems necessarily. It's the systems are there to sort of encourage you to get to know these people. The amount of invasion that you can do into people's homes is <laughs> kind of upsetting. You can peep in every window in every building in the entire town. That was impressive. Which you would think it's old, but it, it doesn't. And it, and it, it serves it, no it, gameplay purpose. Absolutely. You can look at the windows and see these people walking around. and. But yeah, it's I watching guess. someone else's game of The Sims. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> but there's certain things where I still... I was too embarrassed and knew it was a meaningless question, but there's still to this day I'm haunted by a behavior set that Nick exhibits late in the game. If you watch him and Olivia, she leaves for work and he doesn't. He starts staying home from the diner and he sits in his bedroom and rocks back and forth and mutters to himself and there is a brown paper bag, almost like a sack lunch, but it's not a lunch. It doesn't seem to be on mm. the bedside table next to him that he keeps looking at and he like holds himself and just rocks back and forth and talks to himself. And meanwhile, it seems like Olivia is now sleeping in the guest bedroom because that's where she gets ready for work in the mornings. And what is going on with your lives and I can't because it's not part of the gameplay it's just this thing that happens between their marriage and it's, I don't know and I'm going to be like what is in that bag like for the love of God someone please just ask Swery what is in the big sack that had Nick so freaked out but it, it was funny to see you know you're talking about like the questions that were asked after the talk or just in general, he really, more than any other game developer I saw at GDC, people were asking questions more like fans than developers. Oh, like the questions... Think, what do you think of Metal Gear Solid as a professional query? <laughs> or they asked, like, oh, will Francis York Morgan come back for the sequel? Or will yeah, the sequel... no, totally. So, like, really? Yeah. I love how they assume, has they announced a sequel? Oh. They hinted at one. Well, at least he has very explicitly said that he wants to make one, and then I think they hinted that they were starting work on it. Development, not development, but design and research. Because, I mean, they spent, there's photos of the location scouting that they did in Washington State. And they went around Seattle, and they drove around and did a lot of stuff, which is funny when you look at the graphics of that game. It's the same tree over and over and over. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what the Northwest looks like. Yeah, but I'm just like, you needed a location trip to... <laughs> <laughs> to get a pine oh, tree? Yeah. <laughs> you flew all the way from Japan, just because you got, like, the river, and then 1960s-era single-story housing and pine tree. That's it. That's all that's in the game. But yeah, that was, uh, in case you couldn't tell, like, the high point of GDC for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think it was right across the hall, almost in contrast, was David Cage on Heavy Rain, which right. I mean, a lot of people have noted it was almost ironic that they seem to be on opposite ends of the thinking spectrum. Yeah, I guess I don't follow Swery on Twitter, but enough people I know do that I guess he played Heavy Rain and said he thought the story, he said, I think it was a damning with faint praise kind of thing, although I can't remember the exact quote, but people started tweeting at him like, oh, did you try this thing and did you go here and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, and I don't think the game warrants a second playthrough. (laughs) 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 So yeah, I think he definitely, clearly it seems to me that graphics and a more up-to-date UI and all that kind of stuff, it just doesn't seem to be what he cares about. He seems to really care more. It doesn't seem to be necessary. Well, it doesn't. It obviously isn't. (laughs) Even as a design talk, I'd be curious if anyone came out of that talk really feeling 
they learn something that they can apply to their game design going back to work <laughs> or anything. Or if it really was, I can appreciate these these kind of idiosyncrasies, or I can appreciate your weird point of view, and I'm glad you're doing that. But I, mean, I, I, don't I read know, that I his, one of his final points was just put all your ideas into the game, right? Yes. And whether or not it, it's appropriate, <laughs> just like throw them all in there. It'll be fine. Yeah, like that, that's absurd <laughs> advice. <laughs> and me, I'm like, I, or it's like to me, I'm just I don't know because it's obvious I love that game and it was helpful for me to check out of the fan space of it and actually sort of critically analyze it for a while and listen to the designer and sort of hear where they came from with that. But he did have a lot to say about character and about sort of connecting the character with the player that I thought was actually pretty useful. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody should smoke and shave in video games, but the idea that. You can, video games are your main character if it's the kind of thing where you want to establish a strong relationship between the player and a specific character, which it isn't always. But in that situation, I think that there's, it's genius to sort of elevate the mundane aspects of the player's life and have those be shared with the character since that, that's your hero. And so to have the hero as a way to avoid just doing hero anti-hero, like, oh, well, he's a bad guy trying to go good. And so you root for him because he killed a cop and he's sorry or whatever. Mm. It said, oh, well, he's not a superhero and he also has to do normal things that you have to do, but he still manages to be an awesome person or like a that, crime solver or whatever. That was one thing I liked about Heavy Rain. I mean, just... I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, doing the, like, the little actions. Like, how often does a game have you playing with your son or washing your hands or, I don't know, setting a table? Everything in video games, or make a grand generalization here, but so many things in video games have this just epic scale to them and everything you do is saving the world and your justification for doing everything is life or death epic, and epic, epic. yeah 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 it, it was nice <laughs> in both heavy rain and deadly premonition having these these little the mundane, human yeah. moments mundane moments just experiences that you can actually kind of connect to as a person yeah i mean my, one of my favorite parts of deadly premonition is the running into town at the very beginning of the game which is for mm. the character cutscene, you run for like 500 yards to get to the town because your car broke down. And you just <laughs> run. Like, there's no music. And it's just running through again the... And it, it's one of those things where it would be generally sort of that like Batman Arkham Asylum, we're going to have this hallway so we can show off our water effects kind of showboat moment where it's like they just sort of let you enjoy their beautiful graphics and all of the really <laughs> awesome like high-poly rendering that they did. Except that game has really terrible graphics. Like, they're, <laughs> well, they're not even terrible. They are workmanlike. They are are very basic representations of the objects they represent, and they do a good job doing that. There's very little that I look at in that game and go, what is that? They're successful, but they're not beautiful and lifelike. They are not photo real, crazy, crazy high-level graphics. And so to have a scene like that where you're just running and looking and you're really not looking at much, it's odd. It gave me pause, and I think that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to just kind of give you pause and enter you into the game world in a way and sort of think about what you're doing as that character. Because I, I had a, I had a similar I'm reaction saying. with the whenever you had lunch with at the police station. Yes. Every time you had lunch in the in the police station, you had like a little cutscene. And I don't know how many there were. I never saw the same one twice. They're, but it yeah, was they're just, different for every day. And it was just a bunch of, it was police officers shooting the shit. They were making yep. fun of each other. They're making jokes. It was just like this weird little human moment that had no, no long-term effects or anything. It was just pure, I don't know, it was like how people actually will have lunch together. Yeah, exactly. And it's like one of those things where they took the time to do that, but they didn't take the time to make the end game successful in any way. <laughs> Beating the one of the final bosses in that game is one of those moments where we had the wrong weapon, and so we were just like up until 2 in the morning trying to kill this ass. 
and it just didn't. Sorry, this bad person, and just could not get it done. <laughs> so it's like, I, like I find the actual gameplay of that game to be so frustrating, but like all of the things around it are so wonderful that it's sort of well, it's still great. <laughs> but the thing is, is, that fascinates me way more than, for example, Red Dead Redemption, which is like the opposite. Beautiful game, absolutely gorgeous, with this very compelling storyline, the really, really memorable sort of end game state where you're you do everything, like all the objectives that you are tasked with get paid off in a really satisfying way but the people that you do these things for and the main character you play and stuff who gives a crap like nobody really i've never seen anyone be like yeah john marsden Woo! Yeah, and other characters are great. I really like Bonnie McFarlane. I, I like Bonnie a great too, until they had her kidnapped and implicitly raped and then disappeared from the game. Yeah, Bonnie was great. I wish they'd made a game about her. But you, everybody else is irredeemable criminals, yeah. horrible stereo. I mean, it's a Rockstar game, so it's like you get the bad film stereotype send-up yeah. character, but that's the whole game, so there's not really... And then your character, by the time you hit Mexico, is so morally dubious that... Mm-hmm. Everybody I know who has played that, and granted is a small sample set, but complains about that where like they hit like the midway point of the game and they're like, I don't even care about this guy anymore. I don't like any of the things I'm doing and I don't understand why he's doing them. I don't understand this person. But the game's really pretty and I really like riding on this horse and I really you know, want to play a game that's it's the first hour and the last hour of that game. Just Red Dead Ranching. I would play that game. <laughs> Red Dead Ranching. I would play Red Dead Ranching in a heartbeat. Because uh, that whole redemption part in there, I just found so not motivating. Even though the game is very, very pretty, very well executed, certainly the controls are better <laughs> than the Deadly Premonition controls. By all of my normal standards, I'm, well, systems-wise, the gameplay is just much better. The game feels better. Graphics-wise, it's a much prettier game. The voice acting is... I Actually, I would say the voice acting is probably one of the saving graces of Deadly Premonition. Actually, that's one of his points. Direct voice recording sessions. If and if developers take any of his points or advice, I hope it's that one. Yeah, yeah. The voice does it as music because he doesn't yeah. have a really great grasp of English. So it's they had different styles of music that they used to guide and judge the different voice actors. <laughs> George was heavy metal. And then there York was, was punk uh, rock, wasn't it? Or something? Yeah, no, York was the British invasion. Oh, right. And then Emily was that Juice Newtony kind of 60s, 70s, <laughs> Olivia John, Lady Pop. But yeah, and it shows the voices are great. I think that one of those things, again, where you're looking at these people and it's not like I'm going, oh my God, look at the, like the translucent skin and like look at the eyelashes like you don't normally marvel <laughs> at the graphics but they feel real because like they sound real and they have all these sort of gestures that are very distinctive and they behave in certain very distinctive ways that makes them seem very realistic even though they don't really look realistic at all interesting <laughs> uh, i think i'm the only person who actually yeah I, I think i'm the only one who hasn't yeah, that's going to change, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I do like weird things. I'm down yeah, well, for weird Well, it things. is definitely weird, and I can tell you that it is a good, terrifying experience one way or another. <laughs> awesome. Well, I don't think we can top that, can we? Yeah, no. That was half the show right there. You can tell that was the talk to be at. Did we want to talk about the Limbo talk? I mean, I, Nels and Matthew, you guys went to that, but... Yeah, I wasn't at that one. I didn't. Limbo is a game which doesn't leave room for the player, or does it? (laughs) (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well...
I really don't have much. It was a great talk. They seem like they have some interesting tools, but I don't know if I have a lot to say about it podcast-wise. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely competent, it, but it was very much, if you're trying to make puzzle-based 2D game, here's a bunch of stuff we did, and it's all successful. Mm. It, it was interesting how they were very measured in all their thought processes, right? This was actually kind of interesting. From a feedback perspective, how Limbo, the fact that it is so brutal, wasn't just an accident or a stylistic choice. That was actually kind of interesting, right? If you die, you know you're solving the puzzle wrong. And probably the few bits of that game where it really, it was kind of most challenging in terms of ambiguity or readability or whatever, was when it was more of a dexterity-based challenge you're like oh i'm not am i dying because i'm not quick enough pushing the button or am i dying because i'm actually approaching this wrong but in general the whole i think that was a good interesting at least approach to take where if you die you know you're messing up and there's no ambiguity there right Mm. some of the slides showed several versions of a puzzle and how they more and more simple or they just they saw, okay, well, this version of the puzzle makes sense, but it has 10 interactive elements. Can we bring that down to five, or can we simplify this structure? They didn't go too deeply into general principles for doing that, but it did make you appreciate that if they hadn't put the kind of the love and care and attention to this game that they did, the puzzles wouldn't have been nearly as, uh, you know, wouldn't have been marvelously composed of a small number of really simple elements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yesterday's conference for panel, they actually noted that Limbo had similarities to the talk that we discussed there, the Eric Chahi and other world postmortem, in that they seemed to have crossed in the same exact space when they were designing their games. How so? In puzzle in in much like in the puzzle design oh, right, how right, right, every right, right. little thing had to come together, death be saying that you're doing it wrong. Right. Although Michael Abbott he did like a big organized playthrough thing of another world and I like that game. I actually, I hadn't played it since on the Super Nintendo, right? I played it again, and it was like, holds up very well. Like, it's way better than I remember. I mean, it's not way better than I remember. Like, it was just as good as I remembered, which is way better than things usually are when you go back to revisit them. <laughs> but there were definitely a few bits in another world where you can spend a lot of time doing a really, really wrong thing, and the game doesn't tell you about it at all. I very much appreciate that approach play to take where it's like our feedback is going to be immediate and unambiguous. <laughs> um, that, that was kind of, that was a philosophy I liked, especially when you're approaching puzzle thing. That was about it. They got some pretty cool tools and yeah. I mean, as much as it was a good talk, I would have been curious to hear somewhat more on the, for whatever there is, like, of a story in Limbo. I really liked the first half of Limbo when it was almost Lord of the Flies, when right. you had those those creepy children actively trying to kill you. Yeah. Or, you know, when you had the spider chasing you down, that was really creepy. And then how you end up dealing with those children, which if you haven't played yet, you'll see is creepy too that half of the game i really enjoyed yeah that kind of all fizzled out towards the end didn't it yeah it became more more saw blades more electrified floors it became you lost that sense that anyone was trying to kill you (laughs) which worked for me or at least i I thought worked really well for the first half Mm. of the game oh yeah yeah, that malevolence becomes quite a bit less personal or Mm. at least intentional oh here's a dangerous thing don't touch it versus Mm. this thing wants you yeah Yeah, 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 interesting. No, the first half, it definitely had the very much vibe of being a kid in a forest at night. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because I grew up in, like, a super rural area. But this was one of the few things. Maybe this comes through in Deadly Premonition, maybe not. But in stark contrast to Deadly Premonition, also in the Northwest with the Lynchian vibe, Alan Wake didn't do it for me on a lot of fronts. But at a very broad aesthetic level, it did capture that menace of being alone in northwestern woods by yourself pretty well. Because it's not a really friendly place. People are like, oh, you know, the pastoral beauty of nature or whatever. But really, 
as soon as the sun goes down, most forests are not very welcoming. You get the feeling that this is not a place that you as a, a squishy pink person or <laughs> otherwise are supposed to be. And it definitely had that menace that mm. was even more pronounced in Limbo into more of, you know, an abstract and easier to feel effect. And then when that went away, I wonder if it's not entirely clear what the purpose behind that is. And I, too, would be curious as to what the why. <laughs> are we talked out? I think so. I think we might be. <laughs> we are I just don't have that many words. To, I can't say anything about Alan Wake, really. That hasn't been said. Uh, yeah, yeah no. that hasn't been said already. <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I agree with you. That's definitely one of those games where I'm like, I kind of wish that that game had just been an atmospheric, interactive experience and less of an actual narrative with characters. Yeah. Because yeah. that was awesome. Walking around, for me as a player, I was just really, I kept wanting to get rid of the stupid flashlight. And so that was hard for me. Yeah, yeah. It was fine overall. I liked it at first, but then increasingly I just kind of had issue with the level design. And... Also, I dated guys who talked like that. I was in high school once. That sort of emo, self-absorbed, narrating <laughs> kind of guy. And so just from the get-go, it was one of those things where I'm, you're not my main character are you (laughs) (laughs) do i get to play as your wife in some oh no she's gone okay yeah (laughs) it was just sort of you're hoping it was pd james sort of thing where they have the first chapter show like one person the monster gets them and then we get to the real main character (laughs) shows up right francis morgan could totally solve that i'm just saying (laughs) 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 but it's definitely one of those games i think it is beautiful and they did a really really good job with that atmospheric thing to the point where it was almost I wish they'd trust the atmosphere a little bit more and just let that creep me out instead of trying to have someone describe to me how creeped out I should be. I want a game that's all creepy woods. Yeah, totally, because that creeping menace thing, that's one of the things people pay 20 bucks to go to the movies for. That's what I wanted from the path. I don't want to get too into that, but mm, I, yeah. I was I was sad that within an hour into the path, I was no longer scared of the creepy woods. I was just trying to run through it. Oh, man, where's the next trigger? Which is <laughs> why I keep going everybody is so obsessed with Amnesia the Dark Descent, because... Yeah. Oh, I haven't played that. <laughs> oh, Jesus oh, Christ, yeah. that's I haven't gotten to it yet. Good, good video game reaction. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> good lord, no. All the yeah, that was our when we had the deadly premonition for a loco party. That was our warm up game. That was the warm up <laughs> game. That's like the end of the night for me. Well, and so we had all the lights off, and then what was really great is we were in the freaking water level, and mm, yep. so one of the invisible thing jumped and attacked and like made a splash right when somebody arrived and knocked on the door and so everybody (laughs) (laughs) and so that i was like well that was the best entrance ever but yeah that is that game is masterful at ratcheting up tension and not getting in its own way yep you can play it and then every once in a while like you find a note or you hit something where you talk to yourself again a little bit but it's certainly not it's really you alone with your control set and yep. that was a really, really good spooky experience. I kind of wish to think, now I want to combine that and Alan Wake. Damn it. <sighs> yeah. Those guys were obviously, the guys from Frictional were at GDC showing off the thing yeah. at the IGF booth and everything. I talked to them for a while, and I tried not to gush too much, but I'm, I love what you guys do. Keep doing it, please. <laughs> I'm a fan of a good creepy horror game. Yeah, I played a bit of the one, yeah. I liked it, but, and I think this is why they didn't do that in Amnesia, is that the fighting bits, you don't want to do them, but they're there. So, oh, is, yeah. is this how I'm 
supposed to get through this, or is there another way that I'm just not recognizing? They're cool, they're definitely good, but Amnesia is them hitting stride and figuring out exactly what they want to do. So that's, yeah. yeah. I like that game a lot. Yeah, that All was right. definitely uh, the winner, I think, at GDC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your time. It was great hearing you all talk about something I have completely missed. Aww. Uh, Aww. All right. With me today has been Me Too Can Her. You can read her blog at metoo.nu. Matthew Gallant from Lightbox Interactive. You can read his stuff at The Quixotic Engineer. And Nels Anderson, who writes his own blog at Above49.ca. And finally, Courtney Stanton at Here's a Thing blog, which is KirbyBits.wordpress.com. Thank you all. It's been a blast. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Good talking to you guys. See you next year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Right. Take care. Later. Typing chat? What is that? <laughs> I, I hate to totally break <laughs> the flow there, but I just... We're having a, a, an offline conversation about whether or not we should explain what MDA is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. You know, you're talking and everything, but we're just over here. No. <laughs> you, can, you can mute that, and I just did, worried that it was coming in the recording. Are we going to edit this whole section out? Oh, we, yeah, we, we do. <laughs> As long as there's a clean break, it makes it very easy to edit. Okay.